there are three main streams of influence. About half the risk is heritable. So we get it from probably thousands of genetic variants, some of which increase and some of which decrease our risk. Many of those happen to be things that have to do with metabolism. So they're not even in the brain, they're more likely in the liver. But there are a few neural genetic variations that we've found that contribute. I would say here that most of the genetic variation hasn't been elucidated. So even though we know you come into the world with a fair amount of risk or protection. We don't mostly know why. The second thing is environment, and that is also naturally really complex. Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense, common knowledge, or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do, but only 0.1% a real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have uh, Judy Grizel. She's a TEDx speaker. She's the author of a book called Never Enough, The Neuroscience and Experience of Addiction. So we're going to talk about her uh, work and research in that area. So Judy, thank you for coming. Thanks, Richard. It's good to be here. Tell me a bit about your background and how you got into this area of study first. Sure. It's probably not typical, although I guess a lot of people study things that they have personal experience with. So I am a researcher in addiction because I kind of began my research on the streets. I started using when I was just about 13 and took every drug I could get my hands on for about 10 years. And when I ended up in a treatment center, this was in the 1980s, mostly as a result of cocaine use, they said to me that if I wanted to live, I needed to be abstinent. And I wasn't totally sure I wanted to live without drugs, but I thought maybe I could fix my problem And since diseases can be cured, I was going to find the faulty switch in my brain. And anyway, so despite evidence to the contrary, I ended up finishing college eventually and going to graduate school and getting a doctorate in neuroscience and becoming a researcher. Okay. And you chose to study addiction or what what facet of it are you studying? Yes, I, I do study addiction. I'm really interested in what's different about the brains of people like me before they ever start using, not so much the consequences of regular use, although that's important, but more the liability for it. We know that about 20 to 25% of people who use develop problems. That means most of them don't. And I'd love to understand, other people would also, but love to understand better what the factors are that predispose you or protect you. What does it mean have a problem, 25% of people? Well, they have a substance use disorder, which is characterized by a loss of control over use that is mediated probably by tolerance and dependence. Dependence is the state where if you don't have the drug, you feel worse than normal. So the only way to feel not sick or not craving is to get more drug. As a result of tolerance and dependence and craving, then you kind of give up things that you used to care about in your life, like relationships or work or aspirations. And all of that happened for me. 
Okay. So what have you discovered so far? What are you figuring out about how it starts addiction, how it continues? Yeah, so far. So it's been a long time and I obviously haven't cured it and nobody else has either. But I would say there are three main streams of influence. About half the risk is heritable. So we get it from probably thousands of genetic variants, some of which increase and some of which decrease our risk. Many of those happen to be things that have to do with metabolism. So they're not even in the brain. They're more likely in the liver. But there are a few um, neural genetic variations that we've found that contribute. I, I would say here that most of the genetic variation hasn't been elucidated. So even though we know you come into the world with a fair amount of risk or protection, we don't mostly know why. The second thing is environment, and that is also naturally really complex. It has to do with things like your culture and access, stress, your family background, you know, how religious they are, did they eat dinner together, those kind of things. And also random noise. So just what might happen some day in middle school that, you know, for me it was, I was about 13 and I, a friend, I was at a friend's house and she said, hey, why don't we drink some of my parents' wine, which seemed like a fine idea. And really, that was a big catalyst. And then the third thing, and probably the most penetrant factor, is using the young person. So just like kids learn everything better because their brains are more malleable or plastic, addiction is a form of learning. And it's probably the single biggest predictor of having a problem. So for instance, if you start, if you get drunk for the first time before you're 18, you have about a one in four chance of developing an alcohol use disorder. But if you wait until you're 21, you have about a one in 25 chance. So just uh, giving a little more time to have the neural pathways laid down without addictive drugs on board has, you know, protects you. But why would a, a one-time use lead to such a difference, or is it always a multi-time use? Yeah, I wouldn't say it's always, although in the animal studies, where we try to model what's going on, because I think one of the things you're wondering is, or people might be wondering is whether or not this is causal or it's just a correlation. You know, people who drink alcohol might also be inclined to smoke a little weed or try a little heroin. So it could just be that they are risk takers to begin with. And in fact, they tend to be, that's part of the genetic profile, but we know it in animals by doing controlled experiments where we expose adolescent rats or mice or monkeys or whatever to a little bit of drug. Usually it's not one time, it's usually four times or eight times, but it's not, you know, kind of out of control. And then they grow up normally and then we can look at their behavior and their neurobiology when they're adults. And their behavior shows us that they're more inclined to take more of that drug or any other addictive drug when they're adults. So if they're offered, you know, if they're given nicotine when they're young or alcohol, and then they're offered heroin or cocaine when they're older, they'll take more. But also their reward pathway is a little less sensitive. So they probably are innately tolerant because those exposures during adolescence kind of desensitize the system a little bit. Okay, so again, is there a correlation between number of uses when someone's not fully grown and the likelihood of them 
know, having a problem later on? Is it just one use or multiple or does anyone characterize? Yeah, I, I think the earlier and the more, the higher the risk for sure. So if you have many uses at 13 or eight or, you know, very early and it's much worse than having, you know, two uses at 17, let's say, or 20. So I think, I don't know the, I mean, I think it's, if I understand your question, it's really precisely what is the effect of one big intoxicating event? Is that what you're asking? I think that. Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click Support Us today. Now, back to the show. Someone has, if someone gets drunk once, let's say, when they're 14 versus 10 times, what's the difference in risk? Or if someone gets uh, incredibly drunk when they're, they're, if they're so drunk they pass out versus just getting a little bit buzzed. You know, what are the nuances of it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So 10 times is much worse than once. And a little bit of intoxication is not as bad as getting really loaded. We know that, you know, if you're drinking to pass out, then you're, and especially if you're young, then you have a fair amount of, um, you know, changing the brain development. So binge drinking. And I don't think we usually look at, or I don't know the research on one single binge exposure. Okay. Well, what's the premise of your book? What are you focused on there? So I was trying to explain what is the connection between the brain's response to addictive drugs, the first time you get them, and even before you get them, the sensitivity and the experience of addiction. So I, the center of the book or the sort of central point is that there, the brain likes to maintain homeostasis. It aims for a kind of neutral level in, in all kinds of things, in salt balance and glucose and you know all kinds of things. But it does that in terms of affect, too, in terms of our feeling state. So when something great happens, there's often a little rebound dip, or maybe always. And if something terrible happens, then there tends to be elation later. And drugs are no exception, so we take them because they make us feel really great. But there's always a re- And going back to your earlier question, if you, I think there, it's called anxiety now, even just having a glass or two of wine, especially if you're older, People notice it maybe the next morning. So it might not be that you have a full-blown hangover, but you just feel a little, you don't sleep quite as well, even though alcohol is a sedative because there's a rebound, you know, excitation. And also don't, you know, have a little more anxiety because it reduces anxiety. So whatever you take a drug to do, if you do it regularly, then your brain produces the opposite state. And the more you do it, the stronger the opposite state becomes so that eventually... When you have a substance use disorder, you're not really using to get high, you're using to not feel sick. You know, the main reason for using nicotine is just because it feels so terrible not to use it. 
after a while. Well, why? Because your body stops producing the necessary you know, chemicals to make you feel okay? Or why? What's the mechanism? Yeah. So in each case, in each drug, it's different. And I go through all of the different drugs. But let's say in with nicotine, activates acetylcholine receptors, and then they get desensitized quickly. It's a really interesting drug. So it kind of spurs their activity and then makes them go to sleep a little bit. And that's why it's a stimulant and also it helps us relax. It's an interesting drug. But at any rate, so because of that kind of net effect of sedating the receptors, they proliferate in order to compensate. So if the drug is going to shut them down, the brain is going to compensate by increasing the number of those receptors. And it does this in spades in regular smokers. So that now when they're low on nicotine, their blood levels are low or it's the first thing in the morning, they really kind of need a hit of nicotine because those receptors, which are, you know, overpopulated compared to normal, are extra hungry. I um, drink caffeine every day, every morning, first thing. It's a stimulant too. And um, when I wake up, then I don't really wake up until I have the coffee. So until I get a cup and a half in, I am not really worth conversation. So if you take a drug like opiates to reduce suffering, you know, they're really great at blocking pain and producing tranquility. The clear signs are, you know, misery and, and tension and anxiety. So in restlessness, and those are mediated by what do you mean the clear, what do you mean the clear signs? You just said that it, it can make you feel more relaxed and tranquil. And then you start talking about the opposite. What do you mean? Well, the opposite is it or what happened? Yeah. When you're withdrawing. Yeah. When you don't have them on board. Right. So people who use opiates regularly feel normal with them. They don't feel extra sleepy or extra euphoric. In fact, many of them don't get high, but they feel terrible without them because the brain is yep. compensated. Go ahead. So it sounds like there's a, tr a transition of experience. At first, someone takes something and they feel really good or really calm or whatever it is. Then over time, they start not feeling good if they don't have it. They take it, but the person's not addled by it or feeling high as much or experiencing as much. But now they just do it to get to a state of normalcy. So the dynamic has changed. The use reason has changed. Exactly. That's the definition of a uh, substance use disorder. That's precisely it. Is there a third stage beyond that? I don't know if it even makes sense to ask. Well, so because it's a form of brain adaptation, the brain will adapt if you withdraw. I don't know. You know, I, I used to smoke cigarettes. It was m miserable for quite a while. And uh, now I don't really miss them. So the brain will go back to this homeostatic baseline in most cases completely. And sometimes, you know, maybe doesn't quite get up to the baseline level. So for instance, I it's hard to do these experiments in humans, but if you're young and taking a lot of drugs, especially certain drugs like stimulants, uh, cocaine and methamphetamine, especially I'm thinking of here, then and you do that for a while, of course, you feel a lack of energy and a lack of interest and a lack of focus without them. And then you quit, you'll get back to a pretty normal state, but maybe not fully, fully normal. Does that make sense? So I think it's a form of, it's sort of like the learning is always 
kind of latent and the it's the stronger the learning is the more latent it is and by learning i guess i mean uh, adaptation in the neural signaling as a result of experience so what's your goal with the book what are you trying to inform people about or get them to do or not do or figure out oh yeah i'm not trying to get them to not do anything i'm going to be that naive i think i want them to understand if they understand what you just said that there's no free lunch really that if you want to get away with enjoying drugs, really only good way to do it is to use them sporadically and probably not start young. Although I don't say so much about that in this book. I'm, I'm working on a new book where I'm going to emphasize that a little more. That The data since I published the first book has really been coming in about this very um, vulnerable period of adolescent development. But yeah, I, I guess I just wanted people to understand. I think what happened for me is, I so I thought I would solve addiction, didn't solve it. I was pretty happy in the basement of the biology building, working with mice and doing my basic studies in pharmacology, and but also realizing that we hadn't made a dent. In fact, addiction continued to rise. The more science that's published, uh, it's not getting any better. There's no you know, more people are dying today than they were when I got clean. So I thought that understanding wouldn't hurt. And I just attempted to explain what's going on in the brain, in people like me who develop problems. And I thought that might help. So what kind of feedback do you get from readers or watchers of your TEDx talk? The TEDx talk, I, I mostly have gotten good feedback. I have uh, people who write to me probably once or twice a week. So I don't know if it's from the TEDx talk or the book or kind of all of it. Probably they find one and then go to the other. Many of those are young, but many of those are retirees. And so all ages, some of those have specific questions about pharmacology, which is fun. And some of them have their own struggles, which is maybe not as, you know, light of a conversation. But I think just heard from someone today who said that she didn't really think she had alcohol use disorder, but she had read the book. And when COVID hit, she decided to, she noticed that she was drinking more and then experiencing this rebound that we just talked about, you know, sort of, she drank to have fun and relieve anxiety, but then she was feeling more anxious and enjoying things less. So she stopped drinking. And I don't, I don't even think she had a disorder, but she said that it was helpful for motivating that. It wasn't the only thing I think that was helpful to her, but at any rate, I think she hasn't had a drink for a while, which is not necessarily my goal, but you know, I think my goal would be for people to not be dependent and hurting themselves and others with their drug use. Well, there's another dynamic that came to mind. So people chasing, you know, the original high they got, let's say, that sounds different than people taking something just to feel normal and okay for the day. So when does that come about and how does that interact with this other phenomenon that we just spoke about? Wanting to just feel okay versus wanting to chase a high? Great question. There's a, a kind of a myth in the using community that you can, the first time is the best. And that was my experience with every new drug. And I think that, and we know for sure that the, you know, the minute the drug reaches the brain, the first time you drink, the first time you try an opiate, the first time you smoke weed, the brain begins adapting. And it just, it's like any form of learning, the more practice, the better it is at adapting. 
So yeah, that's how it, it plays in. You can chase that right to the grave because you, you know, what you do instead is you try to increase the dose and increase the dose and increase the dose to achieve that. But the you know, I think there'll be, there'll be two kinds of users, ones that are taking something just to feel okay, but they're not increasing the dose. What are the ones that are increasing the dose? And it's just a high. It seems like two different behaviors. Um, well, so it would help maybe to, are you thinking of any particular drug, alcohol, or what are you? I mean, yeah, you know better than me, but like, uh, uh, you know, or caffeine. And I know it's not nearly in the class of, let's say, opioids, but, you know, you don't drink uh, more and more coffee every day to feel okay. You drink a certain amount, feel awake, and you're happy. Um, maybe heroin, maybe that kind of drug has more of the, I still need to keep chasing the high behavior versus, uh, I don't know, alcohol or versus something else. I don't know. It just seems like two very different behaviors. Oh, I see. I No, you're you're making some good points. So with caffeine, you're right. I don't wake up and other people don't, but I just need my two or three cups of decent coffee and I'm good. And that is to do with the pharmacology, specific things with this pharmacology and also with the way caffeine is metabolized. So it's a long-acting drug. With alcohol, I would say it's the the best drink for me was the first one, and that's true a lot. But I think that the less regularly someone drinks, the more they enjoy it, for sure. With opiates, the top the um, the compensation is so profound that they really don't get high, and this is why fentanyl is such a problem right now because. What used to work doesn't work, and you need more and more and more. And so, for somebody who's a regular user, fentanyl is going to be a great product, you know, to them. They're going to come back for more. But for someone who's naive, it's way too much because increasingly, for drugs like that, or well, especially for opiates, the and there are probably a lot of reasons for this, which we could go into. But for that, what happens is there's almost no limit or we can't really find the limit to the brain's ability to compensate. It's really uh, a multifarious methods of compensating. And so the person is kind of stuck on this very narrow ledge between getting relief or feeling a little bit of euphoria and feeling terrible despair and not being able to rest. Does that make sense? Yeah, but I mean, has anyone studied all different drugs tend to have more of a tendency for, again, escalating addiction or escalating use, which leads to like an overdose or death, but other ones not so much. You know, which ones are more uh, just maintenance type drugs where, again, you're addicted in the sense that if you didn't take them, you'd feel like garbage. So therefore you take them, but you're not, again, trying to chase more and more a greater or greater high. I mean, like nicotine too, it seems like that. You don't, uh, I haven't heard of many people overdosing on nicotine. So it seems to get to this stasis level where you have enough. If you don't have it, you're not going to feel well, but you're just kind of more of a chronic user versus like an acute, I want to get really, really high type of user. Well, I think it's it's not that most users want to get really, really, really high because I don't think that they, they can. Now, alcohol is a little bit of a unique drug because it's so not potent. And so you, you know, pass out before you can keep drinking and drinking. So it's kind of um, weak in a way. And, but people who, so for instance, one of the effects of alcohol is to cause the synthesis and the release of endorphins. So someone who hasn't, and, and that 
tendency, by the way, it varies in people. So those that have a risk for alcoholism might be have, have more of that tendency. So they find it especially rewarding because they're kind of releasing their own opioids just from a few drinks. But with regular drinking, that goes away. So the, the system stops making endorphin. And now when they don't have alcohol, they feel dysphoric, you know, less content and relaxed than normal in part because of this change. There's a lot of other changes and they can't really drink enough alcohol to get that better. So if, and and one of the things that is kind of implied in this is that if you're a person who has a positive family history of alcoholism and you have a genetic risk and you're likely to have this endorphin thing, then you're likely to find it especially rewarding and pleasurable because it's boosting your endorphin levels. So then you're likely to become a regular drinker. If you, on the other hand, drink alcohol and you think, well, it's nice to be a little relaxed. I might do that again, you know, next month. Then the adaptation is going to be less profound. And it's also the case, I should let me give another example. So with THC, for instance, which is addictive, and again, about 20% of regular users have what's called the cannabis use disorder. And one of the reasons they have that is because the brain sensitivity to cannabis decreases. And it's sort of the opposite what we talked about with nicotine. So with nicotine, the receptors proliferate because nicotine ultimately dampens their activity. But THC activates cannabinoid receptors and regular exposure to THC reduces the number of those receptors. And the response, by the way, with other drugs is not always this clear-cut and simple, but the receptors downregulate. So now to get, you, you can't really get as high. You know, I think there's nothing more fun than the first few times with THC, to me, anyway. But the more you smoke, the more not having it feels kind of bleak and boring and having it just feels, you know, so I think anybody who uses any addictive drug regularly is going to experience a dampening of its effect. And the, and some drugs like opiates are, you know, kind of seem to have an unlimited ability to counteract. Our brain has an almost an unlimited ability. Alcohol, it's not unlimited. You'll you'll die first. Well, again, drugs work differently. Ones that will get you high, again, that will dampen, let's say, your receptors. How do addicts respond to that versus ones that won't? Like coffee, nicotine, things like that. Well, that cell addictive. That's usually a different mechanism, too. Okay. So, well, every addictive drug shares this ability to activate the dopamine reward pathways. People call it the reward pathway. It's, it's actually more like a news pathway. It's um, a mesolimbic circuit with dopamine neurons that when active, give us a sense of hope and pleasure and curiosity and anticipation that's, you know, quite lovely. So every single addictive drug is addictive because it activates that pathway. Now, caffeine is is do, doesn't do that very well, and it doesn't do that for all people. So there seems to be a lot of genetic or variation that influences that. But it's not, you know, wildly addictive, or people would be, you know, hanging out outside the Starbucks. Well, it's pretty addictive in that there are tens of thousands of probably thousands or hundreds of thousands around the world. 
Well, yeah, we caffeine is very it induces dependence, so you you need it to feel normal. But they we don't really think it's addictive because one of the criteria is that it has to hurt your life. It's you know if you have a substance use disorder, it means you are the costs are outweighing the benefits, and that's not the case with caffeine for virtually anybody unless you have a real problem with insomnia and for some reason you don't knock off a little early or you're pregnant, in which case it's counter-advised. But otherwise, it's it's probably good for you. It's beneficial for lots of things. So caffeine is not the best example. Nicotine is a much better example. Nicotine, opiates, alcohol, methamphetamine, THC, all pretty good modulators of this mesolimbic dopamine pathway, which becomes less sensitive with regular use so that the reward you get from the drug is reduced. So you try to increase your dose or use it more often. But all drugs have different effects because in addition to that dopamine, they do other things to the brain. So alcohol activates GABA receptors to make us kind of sedated. Other drugs influence norepinephrine signaling to make us more aroused, you know. So I think in addition, and I guess, can you remind me of your original question? I think I got myself a little lost in that. Well, I mean, it it sounds like there's different types of addicts, not just one type. And then I've heard in the past, some drugs are physically addictive, physiologically, and some are psychologically addictive or both. So it sounds like there's some nuance here. It's not just same drugs affect people differently. Different drugs affect people differently. There's uh, different types of addictive behaviors, I would guess. Has that been characterized, looked at? It just doesn't seem like there's a monolithic person called an addict that just, you know, whatever drug they take, uh, they, they use in the same manner and in the same way. They escalate in the same way, they de-escalate in the same way, et cetera. So that's what I was asking is, what is the nuance here that you've observed? Well, most people who are addicted to one of the drugs, not caffeine, we're not talking about that, and not necessarily nicotine for social reasons because it's available. And But most people are kind of jacks of all trades. So they tend to take one or another or another. So addiction does kind of clump up. And But you're right completely that it looks different in different people. So for instance, if you are a very moderate user most of your life and then retire and start smoking weed, let's say, to deal with your knee pain, then your use patterns and the consequences are going to be a lot less or a lot different than if you're a 15-year-old who's smoking regularly to, you know, try to cope with the anxiety of growing up. So I do think that there is a shared neurobiology and a shared kind of um, description of having a substance use disorder in general, including tolerance, dependence, craving, changing your habits so you spend more time using and less time socializing, for instance, and definitely having negative consequences from your use. If you didn't have negative consequences, then there would be nothing to talk about. So those those consequences vary as a result of the pattern of drug use, the type of drug use, the age at which you start, your inherited risk, your environment, if you have a lot of stress and trauma in your um, background or in your current situation, you're more likely to use excessively. So certainly there's not one size fits all, no. Well, very good. Uh, Where can people find out more information about, I mean, where can they get your book? I would guess Amazon and everywhere. 
books are sold. So if you don't mind, maybe restate the title. And then where can people find more information about your work in general? Sure. So uh, the book is called Never Enough, The Neuroscience and Experience of Addiction. It's available on Amazon and other places, hopefully independent bookstores too. And you could Google me, but the, if you wanted to email me, the best place probably would be at my university, which is Bucknell University. It's, uh, my email address is j.grisel, G-R-I-S-E-L, at bucknell.edu. And I've given some talks that are all over the internet, so you could look at those too. Okay, very good. Well, Judy, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. You're welcome. Bye, Richard. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.